Hello my friends, I am super excited to introduce you to my friend and a very special person, Maria Shuiko. She is the creator and owner of uh, Joyful Living. Maria is a very beautiful person. Today she is going to talk about highly sensitive people, letting us know how to spot a highly sensitive person and uh, how to take control of our emotions to be present in this world. Maria holds a PhD in quantitative psychology from the City University of New York. I met Maria way back in 2004 um, when she was a postdoc at Penn State and I studied for my master's degree. Um, after Penn State, Maria uh, worked as an assistant professor in applied st statistics, mindfulness and behavior change. She also worked as an associate professor at Nor Northeastern University in Boston. Maria produced over 40 publications received grants and participated in over 100 conference presentations. Uh, she also completed studies in meditation, energy healing, and she got a master's degree in metaphysics, spiritual studies, and alternative healing from Delphi University. So as you can see, she is an overachiever and here's what I love about Maria. Of course, her level of education and commitment are very inspiring and admirable qualities. Um, but what I really like about her is the fact that she overcame so many personal challenges to um, arrive at this level of personal fulfillment and peace that we often cannot find. Instead, we try to fit, fit in or uh, work uh, the jobs that we don't really like. What she did instead, uh, she turned inward um, to understand herself and her creative passion. After so many years of inner work and she's a, a totally different person. She's going to share how important it is to address our personal needs and uh, how we can become more uh, fulfilled as people um, living in this crazy world. I'm excited and honored to uh, introduce you uh, to this amazing person. Please welcome Maria Shiko. Hello, hello, welcome to my show, Masha. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here today. So you're a highly uh, skilled and educated person. Tell me about your academic work bef before you went solo. I see. Well, my professional career has been not straightforward for sure. Um, so when I came to this country, I was already educated to be a teacher and I, my background was in history and law. 
pedagogy and history and law. And then when I came here, I was uh, trying to figure out what I can do professionally because I didn't want to work in a restaurant. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided to get my PhD in applied statistics and psychology. So I was I was working as a university professor for close to a decade, you know, like if I count my postdoc. So it's been it's been a while. Um, I've I worked in academia uh, on a tenure track professorship and I did a lot of research and taught. So any everything that the professorship entails. In what university did you work? I was in Northeastern primarily. Tell me what you do now and explain how you switched from the academia going to your current profession. That's a great question. It's it's a very nonlinear path. So, I mean, I, I transitioned in 2019 uh, to start working for myself, but I was teaching yoga beforehand, you know, before I started my own business or I was teaching meditation, was working with people, doing energy work. And I'm a multi-talented person. And so I find myself that just doing one thing, it's very challenging for me. I, my brain needs to switch. My brain needs to do something else. And, uh, you know, in academia or in general, kind of the traditional path of just doing one thing and dedicating myself fully to that path was not fully working. And plus, I don't think it was a, the best alignment. Like that that job was not the best alignment with my skills, my talent, my personality and my interests. So I have been um, interested in alternative medicine, self-help. Uh, spiritual development, spiritual coaching, spiritual work for a number of years. And I it started, I believe, maybe in 2009 or 2010, so like a decade ago. And it was more of a side hobby where I was trying to help myself and try to figure out life and how I can live it in a way that, that is meaningful and more in alignment with myself. And then I knew that the academic path is not supporting my personal authenticity, my alignment with what I feel I'm here to do on earth. And so in it was a it was not an easy choice to be honest to transition because I had a tenure which means that I have a lifelong job with a paycheck and there was a lot of security that came with it. And as you probably know, being an entrepreneur is a very um, uncertain path. You have to provide for yourself. You have to learn skills that I didn't have before, like marketing and advocating for myself and demonstrating my value. So I I didn't know what I was getting myself into, to be quite honest. <laughs> it was more of a following my heart type of a jump, but I think I hit the point where uh, I was just so miserable, if I were to be completely honest, that I was so miserable that it was not feasible for me to continue to be a professor. Like no benefits, no financial security could really outweigh how I felt inside. Mm -hmm. And so I had to choose myself mm -hmm. as I made the transition. Yeah, I think you you are very brave because most people settle for comfort as opposed mm. to uh, feeling good about 
our purpose. Thank you. <laughs> it was brave. <laughs> so yeah, so it's very admirable. Well, the topic of our conversation today is highly sensitive people. Could you give me a definition of a highly sensitive person? I got interested in um, in the topic of highly sensitive people just a few years ago as I'm working with my clients. I would define highly sensitive people as people who have the capacity, physiological, emotional, spiritual capacity to feel very deeply all their life experiences. And physiologically, there have been a lot of research done in terms of the depth of information processing. It's quite different for highly sensitive people. I think of this as kind of the level of information can go can go for some people at a like a specific depth level and for highly sensitive people they just feel so much with all their senses with smell and hearing emotions uh taste and tactile experiences that because of their sensitivity takes a certain pace of life to be able to kind of live in this world which is really fa fast paced world and um requires a certain adjustment to life. Mm -hmm. So I would say that highly sensitive people are kind of a specific part of subpopulation, which is about 20%. That's what research has been showing that it's about 20% of people who are highly sensitive and who have this depth of information processing. And interestingly, this is the same across genders. So both men and women, they're as likely to be highly sensitive, but what happens is that for men, because there are certain stereotypes about genders and how men are supposed to be tough or maybe tough skin or not emotionally available, they might be highly sensitive, but they might deny it or not identify with it. And it might take them longer to even find out if they are highly sensitive, which is a challenge because I think once you understand about high sensitivity, then you can take certain measures in life to make your life better. Mm -hmm. And I think women tend to get to that point faster than men, but it's it's a trait that equally present in men and women. I think it also depends on culture. For instance, in Russian culture, all men are strong. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, yes. um, you know, it reads as a weakness, right? Being a highly sensitive person reads as a weakness. So do you think it's a weakness or actually strength? It's a great question. I think it can be both. I mean, it's a something that the that the research has found that is present both in animals and humans. So it's not only just humans that have this degree uh -huh. of high sensitivity. So certain species or certain subtypes of animals they also have this um, quality. But what I find from working with people and from my personal experience, because I'm a highly sensitive person is that it can be both a strength and a weakness. I'll give you an example for uh, self-care. 
So self-care is very, very important for highly sensitive people. And so right now in my life, I prioritize self-care. I take breaks. I go for walks every day. I meditate, exercise. I eat well. And for a very long time, I had no idea that that is so, so important for me. Mm-hmm. And I would be burned out, overworking, where my health was suffering so much for, because I simply didn't know that I need to take certain actions, preventive actions, to take care of myself. And so I think right now it's a strength because I'm in a very good health, like emotionally, spiritually, physically for the most part. And But that comes from knowing my needs and taking care of my needs. And in the past, I didn't know that information and it really impacted me personally in a very negative way. So in that way, it was a weakness, but now it's a strength. Mm -hmm. And I find the same thing with my clients, you know, people who are ready to take responsibility. And I don't only work with highly sensitive people. I work with different kinds of people. And I, even those who are not sensitive benefit greatly from Mm self-care. And and once once changes are done, then life improves. So you you think it's a weakness until we take charge of it and actually become responsible for our uh, emotional state, right? Yes, I think it's actually true for any kind of trade. Mm-hmm. I think there is a dark and the light for any trade that uh, that human have, um, you know, and unless we evolve and transform it, we it can be either way. It can be either weakness or strength. I don't think it's it's objectively good or bad. It really depends on what we do with it. Mm-hmm. I find that because I'm able to feel uh, people and to see a lot, I'm able to understand others more or understand their motivation more behind their behavior. I think it's a strength, but it can also be overwhelming because it's like you're feeling for everyone and sometimes it's confusing. Is it mine or it's someone Mm. else's feeling? Is this... Like, does this sensitivity apply to artists, uh, musicians, or it includes other professions? From what I understand, this trait can be represented in different types of professions. So people who are managers, they sometimes can be highly sensitive people. And in fact, they can do quite well. It's just a very different dynamic. There are different types of managing people there can be an authoritarian way right where you kind of very hierarchical you just tell people what to do Mm -hmm. or it can be more um, empathetic and compassionate where you are a leader a compassionate leader and you are leading the way you are seeing the vision you're holding the vision and people are either following you or aligning with you and I think there are several examples of of such leaders in this society i'm not quite sure about barack obama if he's highly sensitive or not like i'm i cannot diagnose that but he's an example of a very different leader and so there are many highly sensitive people who would be amazing leaders or Mm -hmm. managers 
um, artists, they also tend, or creative people, whether it's musician or writers or artists or healers or psychologists, social workers, people in the helping professions, nurses. So highly sensitive people because they're empathetic with other people's pain. They tend to go into the serving professions, which in some way uplift others. So it would be really challenging for them, for example, to be cashiers or to work in a factory or to do uh, computer work, um, you know, accounting work all day long. Mm-hmm. It's possible. And I have worked with a few people who do accounting, but what they try to find is meaning. They want to find meaning in their work because simply doing the work without assigning mm-hmm. meaning is very challenging for highly sensitive people. And so if they're able to connect to the meaning of what they do, then it becomes not only helpful to others, but meaningful and fulfilling to them as well. So do you think that this search for meaning applies to highly sensitive people only? I thought it applied to almost everyone. No? I think it's a purpose of human life to find meaning. So I don't think it's relevant only to highly sensitive people. But I think because of the depth of processing, it's almost this desire to find meaning is amplified in highly sensitive people. So for instance, you know, some people who are not sensitive, they might read a few books on the meaning of life, right? Or they they might watch a movie or talk to someone. And highly sensitive people, they would go on a pilgrimage around the world. <laughs> or, so, <laughs> you know, the, like the degree of the intensity of the action is quite different. <laughs> or they go and go to a monastery for a decade and meditate. So... <laughs> I think this search for meaning is just, I think it's true for every human being to find why they're here, what's the purpose, what's the connection with God, but maybe the degree to which it's expressed (laughs) varies. That's good to know. This podcast is absolutely free. It means a role to me if you rate it. It takes just a few seconds Uh, please rate this podcast. Thanks so much. Okay, explain the concept of self-parenting. What is it exactly and why do we need it? Wow, this is super, super important. And this is what I find in my work. So (laughs) this is not only relevant for highly sensitive people. I think it's relevant for anyone, but The idea is that we receive parenting from our parents primarily as a child. But as far as our society is evolving, there has not been much understanding of the role of parenting and how much it impacts a person's life. And I come from the field of, you know, self-inquiry and alternative medicine and spirituality and psychology. And so many studies, so much research has shown that the way children are parented has a profound and long-term effect on how they are when they grow up. And we can 
look at several characteristics like self-esteem and self-acceptance, how comfortable you are in skin, confidence, ability to pursue goals, make mistakes. And so there are different parenting styles, authoritarian, permissive. Um, these are not the most advisable and then more of a compassionate leadership as a parent or respectful parenting is one example of a new new way of parenting. So for children who haven't received the parenting that really emphasized unconditional love and they didn't feel validated, they didn't feel seen, they maybe didn't have a lot of choices in life, what usually comes later in life, and again, there are differences whether you are a highly sensitive person or not highly sensitive person, because again, for highly sensitive children, the impact is larger. Like if you don't get something, maybe for a child who is not highly sensitive, yes, they have felt it, but the impact is smaller. But for because of the nervous system and the depth of information processing for highly sensitive children, what happens is that the impact of whatever they haven't received can be longer, longer lasting, or they might have developed, so to speak, like wounds um, that I'm not good enough. It's a very common wound. I'm not good enough. Something is wrong with me. And it's not because it's objective, not because there is something wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with you, but the feel feeling might be there. Mm -hmm. And And this is actually what most of my clients come for help is to figure out what is this feeling? What am I feeling? Why trying to figure out what's wrong with them when, and really self-parenting, learning how to self-parent is to learn how to give yourself what maybe you haven't received as a child because this inner child continues to stay there and ask for love and cry for help. And as we grow up, we have to learn how to parent our inner child ourselves. Mm -hmm. So oh, what, what are the ways of uh, self-parenting? Say if, if the feeling is feeling not good enough, for instance. Yes. A very simple exercise that I can share now is... Um, for example, I connect to divine energy of unconditional love. So for me, the unconditional love is not connected to a person, but it's more connected to the love of God. And I am not religious, but I'm spiritual. So when I... So then give, give a definition of God then. Unconditional because love. Unconditional, unconditional love. Unconditional love. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Unconditional love. So when I connect to that, I have self-compassion or I connect to the part of me that is able to experience compassion to me being in pain. Let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. And because when you feel that you're not good enough or something is wrong with you, you're suffering and there is pain. Mm -hmm. And so I am in that moment, instead of judging myself and saying like, what's actually wrong with me? Say I try to feel that deep sense of self-compassion and self-acceptance, something that I would do with my child. So if my child is hurting or if he's crying, 
or if he's experiencing some emotions, I would try to be there and not judge him. Just either be present. Sometimes I would give him a hug. And so that is exactly the same process, but instead of giving it to an external child, you're giving it to yourself. Mm-hmm. And you're connecting to the feeling. I, f- I find that this whole process of reparenting and self-parenting is really a huge invitation to connect to your heart and and to self-love. Mm-hmm. Oh, what I find um, can be difficult for people is to find that self-love going through a lot of pain. Because when you feel pain, you don't feel anything else. It's just pain. So what do you recommend doing to overcome this? Yes, I think we have a tendency as a society, or maybe, you know, this is a conditioning that comes from our ancestors. If someone is in pain, to almost keep adding judgment to that situation. And so our mind tends to go there. Well, if I'm in pain, let me either figure it out logically or let me find the proof of what's actually wrong. And so instead, and I think for me, it's coming from many years of spiritual work and spiritual practice. How can I both be a witness and an experiencer at the same time? Because a part of me that experiences this pain and suffering and then a part of me is okay like a part of me is just present and loving and so my practice over the years has been to cultivate this part that is present and loving so when I'm in pain I can rely on this part that is stronger and stronger with every day with years of practice that is able to have so so much love so, so much presence and not be afraid of emotions, not be afraid of the experience that I'm going through as a human and bring love and compassion to the experience that I'm going through. Mm -hmm. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Okay. It does. Okay. So my next question is about the concept of boundaries. What are they and why are they important in our daily lives? I think most people talk about boundaries in the context of boundaries with other people. Mm-hmm. I, I personally use boundaries as kind of a concept of self-discipline with yourself in addition to boundaries with other people. Okay. There is a philosophical aspect of boundaries and a very practical aspect of boundaries. We are separate humans. We have our individual lives. And so what I find uh, with people often is that sometimes they get lost in the collective consciousness and the collective maybe desires or pursuits. Like, for example, if everybody says, oh, you, you're supposed to have a kid by the age of 30, it doesn't mean that you actually are supposed to have a kid by the age of 30, right? Because mm-hmm. just because of the collective desire or something, maybe culture, conditioning, it doesn't mean that it needs to be applied to you. So I think that the boundary helps us to separate ourselves from others and also learn how to develop our own sense of self and how 
and ways to listen to ourselves, develop our own identity, which is necessary to live in this world, to have a sense of identity rather than rather than merge with other people and their wishes and desires. Like that's that's the idea of kind of growing up from living with our parents and being a being an adult, being a sovereign being. So in that way, boundaries are helpful to know where to go in life and what to focus on, because what we focus on, that's what we create. And then there are some as other aspects of boundaries. I, I mean, some of them have to do with meeting other people's needs. Like people ask you all the time, like, can you help me? Or mm -hmm. can you do this for me? Can you not do this for me? And we have to choose. We have to choose if we are able to give or not able to give. And I think this is a challenging skill for many people because we are often conditioned to people please or to make other people happy. And boundaries are important in knowing that it's okay to say no. It's okay to choose and be discerning about what you choose in life, where you go in life, how you help, whom you help, what resources you share and what resources you don't share. I think based on kinds of different, it's, it's a fluid, it's a fluid concept of boundaries because you can have very wide boundaries and help everyone like Mother Teresa type of thing, or you can have very, very narrow boundaries and be completely self-centered and, uh, selfish i'm not using it in a negative way as a judgment but but i think we all play in our life and maybe that depends on your situation in life how you are moving those boundaries if you let the boundaries to be wide and or if you let them to be narrow and i think it depends on the context the people that you interact with your goals and your focus and I think another aspect of boundaries that I I have for myself is to train my mind to not go on a very wild road. So like if my mind goes into negative thinking, I have a boundary where like this is not acceptable. So it's not just in the relationship with other people, but for me, boundaries also part of self-discipline of how I train myself to be with myself. So if or if my mind starts comparing myself to other people or going goes into jealousy or my job is to set a boundary for myself and become very self-aware and stop so that I don't perpetuate this negative pattern that affects my life negatively. How do you make yourself stop then if you think something that you shouldn't be thinking it's a it's a it's a discipline for myself so i have a practice where like for instance in the morning i set an intention morning and evening i try to meditate for a few minutes and if i feel that i'm in the middle of the day going on the wrong in the wrong route i i stop and i would just put some music or dance or go for a walk I try as much as I can, as much as I can use my awareness and catch myself to not let myself roll in negativity because mm -hmm. then I just don't want to be miserable. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think it's a practice of self-awareness. In the past, I've uh, used post-it notes. Now it's more of 
and especially since I live with other people, I think they often are a mirror for me if I'm negative or not, because if I start being cranky and critical and reactive, then I know it probably has to do more with me than with them. Mm -hmm. And then I will either be compassionate and I say, hey, like I'm really not feeling right well right now. I'm struggling right now. So whatever I'm doing right now, don't take it personally. <laughs> that might be one idea. Or sometimes I would actually go and say, like, I need to go for a walk. And I would go for a walk and usually I feel better afterwards. I think a lot of people don't say no, for instance, out of politeness. Or they just cannot seem to say no. And then they struggle through uh, trying to please other people. Do you have any advice how to feel okay uh, saying no? The root cause of that problem is self-worth. So, and this is a daily practice to know, to come back to the feeling that you unconditionally are loved and that you're completely worthy and that your worth is not dependent on pleasing other people. So that is that is very, very important because often we derive worth from external circumstances and events, and especially for highly sensitive people, it is, again, this is magnified even more. So mm -hmm. for many people, they would say no, they would not even think about it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, okay, no, no, not a problem. They forgot about it. They, mm -hmm. they hang up the phone and went on to have breakfast and it never even registered in their head. <laughs> and for highly sensitive people, they would say no, and they might think afterwards, am I a good person? Am I not a good person? Should mm -hmm. I have said no? <laughs> Is this part of my life path? Is this a part of my life? <laughs> I think it's like, especially for highly sensitive people, this is this is like a skill to practice. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I know for me, for me, it's definitely a skill to practice because I, but I have gotten so, so much better at it over the years. Mm -hmm. I think it comes like, for me, it comes from continuously connecting to my self-worth that is not connected to anything external. Like the fact that I breathe, just that I breathe, that I woke up today is, a, is enough. Like enough, everything else is icing on the cake. <laughs> and I think that, you know, being a mother brings the, brings this up a lot. Like for me, uh, especially because children want your attention, they want your love, they want you to give, 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 give. Mm -hmm. And then you have to say no. <laughs> All right. <But> my son <laughs> is a good trainer <laughs> for me, <laughs> for boundaries. <laughs> He's my best trainer. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you start thinking how to parent him this way and that way so he doesn't end up with problems that you had, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's also a huge challenge because here comes the helicopter parenting. Yep. So what's the difference between allowing to do whatever you want and actually setting boundaries for kids? 
Well, I find that it requires a lot of staying connected with yourself. So in the past, I thought that maybe there are universal rules for like this is right and this is wrong. And I think what I'm realizing the more I'm in this parenting journey that it really has to do with my personal boundaries. So for instance, I'm like I'm a pretty leeway person. <laughs> you know, I I allow a lot of things, but there are some things that that just drive me crazy. Like I cannot have a messy house. It just drives me insane. If things are everywhere and it's a complete mess. So my boundary is to put toys back or to clean up after yourself. And this is a boundary that I have to put with people who share my household, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or um, I do need a specific routine. You know, if things are just kind of happen whenever, whatever, and there is, I I love adventures. I love uh, things that are uncertain. I enjoy that. I enjoy things that are a little bit kind of non-planned. Um, but at the same time, I need the routine of when I wake up, when we have breakfast. And so I think this varies from family to family a lot. And there are certain boundaries that are created naturally from the lifestyle you have and from something that helps you function well because I don't think that having children means that your life is over like I don't want my life to be over I don't want I don't believe in the concept of self-sacrifice for the child there are many things that change when you have a child but you still need to do self-care you still need to function and Mm -hmm. express yourself do the work and I think children learn through boundaries how to live in the society with other people because otherwise it's like it's a dictatorship on the child side it's like a child becomes a dictator for the family which is horrible (laughs) or it could be uh, in reverse when parenting is so strict that it's terrible yes i I mean that's all it's always like the middle way how can you find the middle ground the middle way Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a process. So so let's go back um, to the question of meaning and maybe you can share how to find it. If Mm. a person feels lost, Mm. how do you find your meaning? That's a that's a great question. I I can share from my personal journey and maybe from the journey with my clients because so I'll start with myself. It's just easier for me because I don't yeah. have to re- reveal anyone's identity in that case. I think the question of meaning for me came when everything I was doing externally was not bringing satisfaction. So, for example, you've asked me about my professional career prior to having my business. I think I was taught, like many people are taught, that you grow up, then I was supposed to get married, have children, and and work. And so I followed that path for 28, 29 years, and I'm 42 now. (laughs) So I followed that path, and I I got married. I got a doctorate degree. I got an amazing job. It was very prestigious. I published 
I did everything. I crossed all the dots and there was a huge discrepancy between my external achievements and everything like the way I, I looked amazing. Like I had a handsome husband, <laughs> all of that stuff. But I felt inside that there was this profound hole and this feeling that I don't know myself at all. Yeah, that, exactly. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that I just don't know who I am. I don't know mm -hmm. what I want. I don't know what to do with my life and all of that stuff. And so there was that point. And I think I was 28 or 29 at that point where I was. I remember myself at a conference in uh, Taiwan. I presented my research that was funded by the national grants. And I was sitting there, just gave a presentation in front, in front of hundreds of people. And I was like, what the fucking point of this all? <laughs> like, I don't understand what's the point. <laughs> and I was, I just felt so horrible, you know, even though I was successful on the outside. And I think from that point, the way it started for me, I didn't know where necessarily to go, but I, at that, at that moment I started meditating it was just out of necessity I start. I met with my first meditation teacher at the time and he I remember would meet every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m before work and sit for an hour and I had no idea what I was doing at the time and uh, you know it, it helped a little bit but it, it didn't provide all the answers I think what transpired after that is the actual journey where I kind of said, fuck the world, <laughs> fuck everything that everybody has told me <laughs> about life. I have to learn to trust myself. I have to learn how to make choices kind of inside out. It was not like a, on Monday morning, I woke up and everything changed. It wasn't a one day experience. It was just more of a progressive journey of me continuously choosing something that I was inspired by. Like, mm -hmm. I remember I started um, taking yoga, then I got trained in to be a yoga teacher. So that was a part of the journey. Then I went to India, then I discovered that there are many places in the world I haven't seen and there is no just one way of living. There is just so many different ways of living. There is like no one truth. And then I had a period in my life where I was traveling to different countries and different cultures and experiencing everything and just learning, taking it in. And then at some point I, you know, I went on a very, very deep meditation journey where I would meditate, like became like an urban monk, meditating pretty much all day long and got rid of my possessions, got rid of most of the things I had. And then I got enrolled into metaphysics school and, you know, that all of that is a part of I was still a, uni a university professor, but I was kind of having a job, getting a paycheck. But I was doing all those things in parallel to satisfy this internal desire to find things, to understand life, to kind of figure out a way to live that is not misery and read so many books, read just many, many books from different traditions, different cultures, different writers. Um, and I think what has helped me, I, mean, I can't say that it's like one thing that has helped me was a culmination of all different experiences, but my metaphysics school that I 
found, and I, that's really one of the huge reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing now, is because it had a huge and profound effect of, on me because I've had many spiritual experiences there that has helped me realize that I'm a soul on a journey and that I am here to learn and grow and, and, and grow in life. So all the human experience, they have a meaning from that perspective because they help me evolve. Like being a mom helps me, being a partner helps me, being a business owner helps me. And I think it has taken gradually a few years, I mean, not even a few years, like decade, to shift my mind from being completely paralyzed and not sure what the meaning was to begin to derive meaning from day-to-day -day experiences, knowing that the choices I make every single day, they matter. The kind of energy I bring to my family or to the world or the work I do, that impacts everything. How I interact with people, that makes a huge impact. I mean, the kind of conversation we're having now and, you know, you put in this effort and putting these things on YouTube, like you put in tons of effort and energy into the things you do. So that makes a huge difference as well. And so I don't feel right now in my life that I have this hole anymore, like this hole got satisfied, this search for meaning got satisfied, but it, it, it took a while. Mm -hmm. And... Now I feel I'm shifting more into the ser service, serving others phase, mm -hmm. serving others. And because I find that well, I still tremendously enjoy some of the personal experiences, you know, like sex or going for a walk or other things. Like I enjoy it tremendously for myself, but I also find that maybe sharing parts of my journey or somehow directing people to move through their journey that brings a lot of meaning to me right now mm -hmm. so basically it's your job that aligns with your soul uh creates meaning for you is that right that that's part of it i also feel my family creates meaning because i parent my child very differently from the way i was parented Mm -hmm. And that would not have been happening had I not gone through the journey and learned about mm -hmm. how to reparent myself or the impact that my parent, my parenting had on me. Mm -hmm. So that brings in, that brings impact to parent him differently, brings meaning. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. <laughs> so how do you let go of pain? Wow. <laughs> let's do it now in this moment <laughs> mm. I, th I think it's a common thing for sensitive people because we can be riddled by pain and not knowing how to get rid of it I understand so what I had to do is to learn learn forgiveness and just letting go it, it was not a skill I had necessarily. I wasn't born. And in fact, I don't know if it has to do with the Russian culture or <laughs> with my mm -hmm. family in particularly, but, you know, people hold on to things and people remember and maybe not let go very easily. But I actually had to learn because I think if I did not learn how to do it, I would be 
so burdened by it that I wouldn't be able to enjoy my life, like to laugh or be carefree. And I cannot say that, you know, I'm laugh all the time and I'm carefree all the time. But there were moments I remember myself when I started understanding kind of the impact of the culture and the impact of parenting and what it kind of what it had on me and my life. And I was in a lot of pain, mental and just emotional pain. And I remember one of my teachers actually said, you have to learn to let go. It's almost like, imagine that you're wearing clothes that's like 20 pounds, weighted blouse or weighted sweater. Like you cannot walk through life like that, right? Because it's very heavy, it weighs you down. So she said, imagine that you're undressing and you're taking off this energy that might feel like guilt or shame or victimhood or I feel like a victim or anger. And she told me to practice it for three months every day, even when it's hard. It's like any skill, right? If you never run a marathon, it feels like impossible to run it because it's like your muscles hurt. But -hmm. when you train, you learn how to do it, like how to move one leg in front of the other for a long period of time. So it's the same thing when you, in at first, when you start doing it, it feels almost like artificial and not real. But then the more you do it, you actually start feeling lighter. You start letting go. And so you let go of a lot of things. You It doesn't mean that you become amnesic and you don't remember anything from your past, right? Because... It's part of the human experience to learn. And if we forget everything, then we won't learn. Like we have to say, okay, that didn't work. Let me choose something differently. So there is value in those experiences. But I think the goal and the practice is to leave the value, but take off the burden of this oppressing emotions. If that makes so sense. How, how, how do you take it off? That's the question. Well, you can do it with visual visualizations. You can do it with breath. And literally on the exhale, you say, I exhale, I let go of anger. I let go of resentment. I mean, I literally, actually, this before, before this recording, I, I did like three minutes of kind of intention setting for this interview. And I said, I release any judgment. I release any comparison. I release any agenda. I release any worry. I release any anxiety. And I just had that intention. And then I said, I connect to love. I connect to wisdom. I connect to well-being. I connect to joy. I connect to trust. And so I kind of let go of things. And I filled in the space with what I want. So let go of something you don't want. Fill it in with something you want. And I do this exercise sometimes several times a day. It takes like 30 seconds. Ideally, you want to feel it, not just say it, because mantras or like this repetition mental, they, especially for highly sensitive people, we need to feel it. We need to feel what we're saying. So just saying in the mind is not enough. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. That's what I find uh, uh, is not working with affirmations because you can uh, say them all day long, but they, you don't feel them. How do you make yourself feel? Got what, you. What you say? You have to actually connect in the present moment with yourself and 
be very honest about what you feel. So let's mm -hmm. say you feel in the in the present moment anxiety. You feel that you actually feel it. So you say, I feel and I release. And then maybe change. Like you have to wait a few moments and say, okay, what else am I feeling right now? I feel fear. Okay, I'm feeling the fear and I release it. What else am I feeling? I'm feeling I'm not good enough. Okay, I feel not good enough and I release it. I let it go. <laughs> what else am okay. I feeling? I'm feeling the unknown. I'm feeling that, yeah, I'm feeling like, I'm not sure what's happening. I release that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you fill it up with whatever you want, but you have to feel it. And and it's actually true for, like, it's kind of, I call them embodied affirmations. They're not just in the head, mm -hmm. but more you have to connect to your body and feel what you are actually feeling. Okay. Give it a try. Let me know how it goes for you. <laughs> okay. I will try it. <laughs> um, I have a question about energy healing. Like, what is it? And how do you separate um, real energy healers from all the charlatans walking around saying that they're <laughs> energy healers? Is there a way of knowing or no? Wow, it's a it's a great great question. Let's see if I can have an answer for you or not. Um, well, I'll, I'll start with the energy healing, what it is, and then I'll address mm -hmm. the second question. So, energy healing, you know, the premise of energy healing is that we are energy, and that's you know from quantum physics or from spiritual sciences, everything is energy, and so there is energy. Uh, can be of different vibration, high frequency and low frequency. And it's often connected to emotions and thoughts we think. So for example, if we think thoughts such as I'm not good enough, something is wrong with me, something is wrong with my life, or I'm a victim, or I'm scared of things, those are thoughts and emotions that come with thoughts that are almost like paralyzing, constricting, they activate our fight or flight response and they have different impact on life. Like they can vary from having a creative block to maybe feeling disconnected from people to maybe having trouble with relationships or even even attracting money, actually, <laughs> even, even attracting money in life. And so it can be from personal health to more like practical and pragmatic effects on life. And so what energy healing does and there are different forms of energy healing. There's like, at this point, we live in this age of life that there are many forms of energy healing. And what they all have in common is that they try to raise vibration. So they try to raise vibration for bringing one to think more uplifting thoughts or feel in a more positive way to connect to love, connect to healing, connect to abundance, connect to self-worth, love, acceptance, and all the joy, all of these good things. And so that's the common goal, health, mental, physical, emotional, and so on. And then for the second question, to be honest, I'm not sure how to answer it because I think that because there are so many different modalities of energy healing, I 
I mean, the, the same way that there are many artists or many doctors, I, I mean, I, I personally, I think, choose to believe for myself that there is an energy healer for kind of every person that there is a demand and supply type of thing. So, you know, if there is a bad energy healer, or maybe it depends on the quality, you know, it's, I wouldn't call it even bad, right? There are artists that are starting beginner art artists. Mm-hmm. And they probably can give some value to people who find them because they're a little bit better than the client, <laughs> mm-hmm. but they still exchange value. And so, and there are artists who like have 20 years of experience and they have painted hundreds of paintings. And, you know, for them, it's just a very different level of skill. And the exchange of value is very different when you buy a painting from this artist or or it depends on talent, depends on taste and preference. And so I think I choose to just like not to worry myself, maybe from the place of like not worrying about it too much. I hope that that kind of the demand and supply is there for a reason. Mm-hmm. I I think the only criteria for maybe a good healer is that they have the right intention. They do it for the right reason. You know, because a lot of the healing energy, it's connecting to divine energy of unconditional love and there are different forms again. But if that is the goal, if the goal is if the goal is to uplift and the goal is to do good for the other person and to kind of let go of the ego and be a channel, then I think it cannot do harm. But if the intention is different, you know, if it has any harmful components, then Mm -hmm. that's a whole different story. Okay. (laughs) I hope it's helpful a little bit. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I mean, I understand that more now. Explain how beliefs create reality. It's actually a very important question because I don't think many people think about that, that beliefs create reality, but they do. Let's let's just go back to this belief that something is wrong with me. If I believe that something is wrong with me, this might impact everything in my life. Like if something is wrong with me, I might, as a business owner... I might not advocate for myself. I might not post on social media. I may not promote my products. I may not charge the right prices. I might underestimate actually my value, even though I have 20 years of experience, I might be like undercharging and not charging what I'm worthy actually of. Mm-hmm. And so if I hold this belief that something is wrong with me, I'm it's going to impact my business and my work. It might also impact relationship. Like I often work with people. If if you think something is wrong with you, you don't think that you deserve the relationship where you can be respected or you can be valued or you can be treated in a humane and loving way. And I think this is where women often on like you. I'm generalizing a little bit, but women as a collective, we are evolving a little bit out of this feeling that something is wrong with us because generationally we have been in a more subservient role and maybe not as equal role as men. Again, I'm not trying to like create gender stereotypes because there are different Mm -hmm. men and women, but 
on average. And so beliefs when and that are connected to feelings and our self-concept, they impact what goals we set for ourselves. Like for instance, one client I've worked with recently, the more we're healing, it's a process, the more we're healing this idea that something is wrong with them, they're able to take bold steps that they would not never have taken before. Like they pursue opportunities and competitions and public speaking and book projects that they would not have an idea that they, they're capable of doing that. So that's like a very, um, I think they impact, impact hugely what happens in our life. Mm -hmm. So the message for today is to believe in yourself. Absolutely, always. yes. <laughs> believe in yourself. <laughs> You're worthy of things in life. <laughs> <laughs> so, Maria, I'd like to talk about your books. You wrote two books, right? Mm -hmm. uh, tell me why you wrote them. And um, the first one is my memoir, which I called From Russia to Joy. A journey of spiritual awakening so it has a kind of a contrast a duality there from russia to joy and i wasn't necessarily planning on writing a book but i had to process some of the experiences that i have discovered in some way so i started writing like a journal diary type of thing and then as just to help myself and then I think I tried to burn them a couple of times, uh, the notes that I had <laughs> taken. And then every time I deleted either files, or I actually literally burn and fire, like a few of my diaries, I'm like, I'm done with mm -hmm. my past, that let it go. <laughs> and I couldn't sleep. I just couldn't sleep that, you know, I let it go, but it was not gone. And so this idea kept coming back to me that I have to write a book. That I like, I feel that the book was pursuing me, <laughs> so it would not go unless I created it. And so it was a challenging process because the first book I wrote, it took about five years, I think, because of this inner struggle and because of the very personal nature of the book. I wasn't necessarily ready to share it, but I think I started seeing the larger value in which other people might benefit from my personal story. And... It's written with humor and sarcasm. I think at that time that was helping me to cope. <laughs> so, and I was able to extract some themes uh, from the journey and from my story that I think are universal in terms of self-love, self-acceptance and creativity that everyone has value and place in this world, independent of our differences, independent of maybe our backgrounds and that we're able to persevere and find our ways in life. So that was more of a personal story. And it's a story of my spiritual awakening, because especially around kind of applying some of the spiritual concept of forgiveness. Uh, in my case, it was a lot to let go of in terms of my father, like mm -hmm. forgiving him. And I would not say that I miraculously forgave overnight it, it's really it's been a process I think the more empowered I feel the more I'm happy with my life the more my life goes the way I want it to go the more I, I'm able to see the past from bird's eye perspective understanding where my parents came from 
that they had no malicious intent and they did the best they could. And and that book is describing that journey because I think it's actually very relevant for maybe some people who come either from Russia, but I have many a number of people who come from different cultural experience and even from you know US and they said, wow, you're writing about Russia or about your journey, but I can relate to it so much. And then the second book is, um, it's a, my, my um, brilliant money book for joyful and creative living. <laughs> I think when I was writing, I was actually was co-writing that book with a friend of mine and a colleague. And she's also doing spiritual work and personal transformation work. Um, and her focus right now, I believe, is sex- sexuality, how to release sexual condition and oppression that we have inherited over centuries. And so when we came together, I think both of us were had the same question in mind. I was at the end of my academic life and she was doing some things that she was not like particularly aligned with. And, and we came with a common question of how money either can oppress us or to empower us. So if we make choices that are, let me just get this job because it pays type of thing, type of thinking, it's not always empowering. But how can we put our joy at the center and our happiness and meaning in the center of our our life and then align job choices with what brings us joy so that it has a mutually beneficial effect on people whom we serve and on us. So it's money becomes not an oppressive tool, but an empowering tool because we wanted to break out of this conditioning that money is bad. We Mm -hmm. didn't want to view money as bad. We actually wanted to see money is good, but it comes from this inner transformation. It's a money is a tool. So I think that was kind of our realization through the process of writing the book that money is actually actually neutral. There is nothing inherently wrong or, or right with it. It really depends how you use it, mm-hmm. all of that. So that was a really fun book to write because we took a very creative approach. There are pictures and it's poetic. And we, uh, we took a very creative stance and questioned many traditional views on money. Okay, very very good. <laughs> and so, uh, are the books available on Amazon? Yes, they're both available okay. on Amazon. Both both of them. Okay, very good. Okay, could you share what kind of classes you teach? Sure, sure. I do a lot of one on one one on one coaching work with people right now, mm-hmm. and a lot of it has to do with helping people to connect to their inner joy and so helping them to build a life from the perspective of this inner alignment that we talked about today. So I consider myself wearing maybe several different hats like a spiritual teacher, healer, coach, business mentor, and intuitive because I also am super intuitive. I think that's one benefit of being highly sensitive. (laughs) So and and people come to me with different things, but often the root is the same. So once we go through the inner transformation, in the personal transformation, then 
people find changes in their life. And that's that's really my primarily focus right now. I mm-hmm. I I was doing actually a lot of classes in this year, 2022. I was I taught five online courses about relationships, work, connect with spirit, um, manifestation. That was another fun class. And then and then money, how to release judgment around money. So that was another course. And um, so I, I don't I'm finishing right now a course on relationship. We have another two weeks on that. And then I haven't decided yet how I'm going to do the sequencing in the next year, but it's coming up. Wow. <laughs> it sounds like you are doing a lot. <laughs> There are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of interesting things happening. (laughs) Uh, So tell me how people can find you, how they can connect to you. So one of the best ways is to either follow me on social media or get to my website and subscribe to my newsletter. My website is www, then it's my first and last name, Maria Shiko, M-A-R-I-Y-A-S-H-I-Y-K-O. That love, that love. That love. There is no ad. That love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that love. All the links are in the show notes. Or or follow me on social media. I have used the same person last name on social media. You mean Facebook and Instagram? Facebook and Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. Okay. Very good. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Veronica. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a joy. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. If you like this video, please uh, share it with your friends, uh, leave a comment or rate this podcast. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful day. Take care. Bye-bye.